As we come now before God's word, you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. It's the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that your word is true, that your word is breathed out by you. So help us now to hear from you, cause us to believe, and by your spirit, would you bring us hope and peace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. I could read the first 15 verses there, but it's a bunch of people and their kids. So I'll spare us those 15 verses, and, and we'll start in verse 16 there at the end of this section. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. This is also the only time in at least this year's season of Advent that we'll spend time in Matthew. That's partly because the majority of the Christmas story is told by Luke. Uh, Luke took after Jesus had, had grown up and lived and died and resurrected and then ascended back to the Father. Luke then took a, took a sort of investigative approach to Jesus, uh, took a journalism angle, uh, and tried to kind of seek out what had been true about Jesus and his life on earth. And so Luke then went back even to the birth of Christ to tell us that part of the story. 
Uh, so there's most of Jesus' birth there, but we do get a bit here in Matthew. And in these four weeks of Advent, we've been listening then particularly to the message of God from the angels about the birth of Jesus. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that God's message through the angel uh, was to Mary about the birth of Jesus. And so we got to see uh, the situation from her perspective, through her eyes. Now we get to see what's happening really through the eyes and experience of Joseph. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Joseph is barely a footnote. Uh, I guess that's the way it is in really any birth story. The husband's kind of just a footnote. We're sort of there on the side as the woman's really doing all the, the hard work. But uh, J Luke doesn't give Joseph a lot of attention. That's, that's really, he has other purposes in mind as he's writing. But, but Matthew here does look at Joseph, and I, I am so glad about that because I'm so very curious about what this whole experience would have been like for him. I mean, I have so many questions. Like, for, for example, why didn't the angel appear to Mary and Joseph together? You know, gather them together and go, hey, you and you, this is going to affect you both, so let's just put you in the same room, and I'm going to tell you both at the same time, but he doesn't. Uh, and I don't know why uh, God chose not to do it that way. Uh, God's wisdom isn't ours. He had some purpose in doing it this way. Perhaps it was to increase their faith. I, I don't know. Uh, but we do know that Mary was told about the situation first, and then later now, Joseph is told And even though Luke and Matthew in their Gospels of Jesus give us very different perspectives on the birth narrative of Jesus, they're still in accord with one another. Uh, they, they don't disagree. There's no uh, conflicting pieces here. They, they run along the same track. We know Mary is still a virgin. We know that there's still a child. And it's still pretty crazy. There's still miracle happening. It's still virtually unbelievable. Matthew then leans into the fulfillment part of the Old Testament, and so maybe in your Bible it, it sets verse 23 off in a little separate setting from the rest of the text, because Matthew then is quoting part of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7 a, a, about the virgin conceiving and a bearing a son and his name being, being called Emmanuel. And some critics will point out at this point that the word translated here, virgin, in the Hebrew of Isaiah, can mean a young girl or a maiden, that it's not always necessarily a reference to sexual virginity. And that's true. It's actually true of the Hebrew language, but to say that Mary was just a girl, just a maiden, and not necessarily a virgin is not what the gospel writers are telling us. They're telling us that something truly miraculous had happened here in Luke's gospel last week. You'll remember that Mary was genuinely surprised and questioned the angel about how this child would even be possible. And now in Matthew, as we look at Joseph, Joseph is 
sure this child isn't his. It says a couple of times in the section that he knew her not. You can figure out what that means. That uh, this was before they, before they came together. You can figure out what that means. Uh, now Joseph seems to think that this child was another, from another baby daddy. It was some other man's kid, but he knows at least that it's not his child. And Joseph is wrestling with that reality. You can see it in verse 18. Nope, 20. Uh, well, he's wrestling with this. Yeah, I'll go back to 18. Uh, this is during the time when Mary was found to be with child, says my translation. That doesn't mean Mary was hiding it. You know, oh, I'm hiding it, and then it was discovered. It just means that, that uh, her situation is being revealed. So in other words, she's starting to show. This young girl's now got a baby bump. And, and, and I wonder, um, you know, didn't she, didn't she tell Joseph like, you would think that that would be a conversation you'd probably want to have. Sometime during premarital counseling, a pastor goes and goes, so have either of you had a message from an angel about a miraculous conception? And she goes, oh, yeah, that's me. We should talk about that because it's going to become awkward for you really fast. Uh, and maybe she was just waiting it out and hoping that God would tell Joseph. Um, in Luke's gospel, it says that Mary stayed with her cousin Elizabeth who was also having a child, John the Baptist, and she stayed with her for three months. So it's possible that Mary and Joseph didn't even see each other during that time. That would have been common in the, the, these days, the ancient times. They're just betrothed, so they would stay separate. But now after the three months, she's starting to show. And whether they talked about it or not, Joseph can figure it out. And if they talked about it, it seems that he doesn't believe her. At least, not at first. You can imagine then how Joseph might feel to find his future bride with someone else's child. That he might feel betrayed or a sense of loss at least very, very hurt. Because you can see he, from the text, it seems that he really cares about her. Uh, Matthew tells us, so does Luke, that they were betrothed. We talk about this. They're not quite married yet, so there's no physical intimacy during the period of betrothal. But betrothal means that their marriage is legally binding. They will be married. They're virtually married. In fact, in verse 19, Matthew calls Joseph her husband already. Uh, it's, that, it's that close. And so uh, if either one of them is unfaithful, then in that marriage... The Old Testament in Deuteronomy, we won't look there for the sake of time, but in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24 gives um, the person the right under Old Testament law to divorce then, to separate the, the marriage, and, and in the process of divorce, to shame the other person, to make a public example of them, to make them publicly disgraced so that people would know what they had done. 
I wonder, again, we don't know, but you wonder, was Joseph tempted to do that? To shame Mary so that people would know that Joseph was really the right one? Perhaps he was tempted because hurt people hurt people. But Matthew tells us that Joseph was, was a just man, was a righteous man, so he still divorces her, or he still chooses at this time to divorce her, but he's not going to shame her. He's not going to expose her to public disgrace. He's going to do it quietly, says Matthew, to try to preserve her dignity um, and to try to deal with this very complex situation. And then we hit verse 20. But as he considered these things, in other words, not before, God does not intervene before, but as he's wrestling with this, as he's struggling with what to do, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. There's now a message from God, a visit from the angel. And the beginning of the message, just like the others, starts with Joseph. Don't be afraid. Joseph, don't be afraid. But it's different than with Zechariah and with Mary. Both of them were told, don't be afraid from the angel. But Joseph is told not to be afraid for a different reason. Zechariah and Mary both were told not to be afraid by the angel because the angel was somehow startling or scary or we don't know. Something about that situation in the moment uh, would have caused fear in them. So he says, don't be afraid. But for Joseph, it's different perhaps uh, because the angel here appears to Joseph in a dream, not actually present with him. And that dreams were a common way, especially in the Old Testament, that the Lord would, would communicate with certain people at certain times. And and those dreams were clear. It wasn't, you know, dreams about uh, clowns and flying and flying clowns that you have to get some book to sort of decode what it means. Uh, that these were clear messages from God. They were actual messages of God. And, and what Joseph hears now in this dream through the angel actually fits with what Mary had heard from the angel. But the message to Joseph then is, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. It's a specific area of don't be afraid. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph, I want you to, I want you to continue in this marital union. I want you to go ahead and raise this child as your own. Investing in him emotionally, and legally, with all the things that a father would do. Joseph, I want you to adopt a situation that people will surely see as scandalous. And the reason why the angel says to do this, he says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for, here's the reason, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He says, this child isn't from another man. This child is actually conceived by the Spirit. 
the old King James Version, if you've still got one of those or if you grew up with those, uh, the language there for conceived is begotten. It's begotten of the Holy Spirit. That's the same word as the first 15 verses that we skipped over, the, the list of so-and-so was the dad of so-and-so was the dad of so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, all the way down through. And, and, and so at the end now he says, this child Jesus is begotten of God, of, by the Holy Spirit. That word begotten is kind of funny. We don't use that very often anymore. Maybe if you memorize John 3.16, for God uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's maybe the only time you ever hear that word. So what does the word begotten mean? Uh, I often go to C.S. Lewis for help. And he's helpful here. Uh, this is from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It's one of his more readable books, by the way, if you've ever picked up C.S. Lewis and thought, I don't know what's going on. Uh, this one, uh, you know, we can, we can all handle this one. Uh, so he writes quite a bit here about the word begotten, and I think it's helpful for us. He writes this. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English. This was written in the 50s, by the way, so modern English is still the same. We don't use it much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. So a man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a, a wireless set. I don't know what that is, a different time. Man makes a wireless set, or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say, a statue. If he's a clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed, but of course it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think, it's not alive. Now that's the first thing to get clear what God begets is God. Just as what man begets is man, what God creates is not God. Just as what man makes is not man. That's why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. So in other words, uh, C.S. Lewis helps us here, I, at least that helps me, that this child Jesus is begotten of God, which means he's the same kind as God. We said that earlier in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. 
This child, Jesus, is different. He's very God before all worlds, the eternal Son of God. So, when Adam, the first man, and Eve were in the garden, uh, they, man then was, was created, was made, made uh, like God and in the image of God, but made. But this second Adam, this last Adam, I guess is some of the language, Jesus, is not made by God, but begotten by God. He's fathered by God. He is very God. So Jesus is begotten by God. He's of the same kind as, as God. But we, me, you, all of us, are begotten of Adam, which means we're the same kind as Adam. And that poses a huge problem for us. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For, in, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there's no law, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. In other words, those who were begotten of Adam, of the same kind as Adam, sin, and therefore death reigns in them. The sinners, then, the sons of Adam, are alienated from God. The message of Romans, then, is about how God conquers that. And that's the same as the message that the angel will give uh, to Joseph in Matthew. Verse 21, the rest of the angel's marriage, uh, message is that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This Son of God, very God, will save people from sin because sin is really the biggest threat to us. Our biggest threat is not politics or politicians. Our biggest threat is not poverty. Our biggest threat is not persecution even though Jesus will enter into all of these worlds and they have implications for the Christian, God's message here is that the biggest threat to us is sin, and so Jesus came to save us from sin. So as Jesus grew up, he's a child, and then he grew up into a man, and that's where we hear him in most of the Gospels as an adult, as he lived out his purpose on earth, and he did lots of saving and lots of types of saving. So Jesus saved his disciples, for example, uh, from the storms of the sea one time when it was just raging around them, and, and he did that. That's true, but if he then left his disciples in sin, sin would then wrap around their neck and drag them down to the bottom of the deep. Jesus saved a woman who had a blood disease for, for a lifelong blood disease, and he healed her. But if he leaves her in sin, 
the disease of the attitude of the heart will take her true life. Jesus saved many who were under the power of demons. But if he leaves them in sin, those people will spend their eternity with demons under the wrath of God in hell. If we are not careful, we can become too focused on saving our health, saving our property, on saving even society. And if we do that, we'll, we'll miss Jesus, who's come mainly to save us from sin. Joseph here got a, just a taste of it. But Matthew also, the writer of the gospel, knew what this was like. He experienced this from Jesus personally later as Jesus, uh, the child Jesus grew up. Matthew chapter 9, where is it? Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, that's the writer of the gospel, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, the great physician, sits with sinners, eats with sinners, rescues sinners, and calls sinners, come follow me, come be with me. Hmm. I love that. That's, uh, that's good news for us because deep down, I don't have to tell you, we know that we're all sinners. Uh, we even hear it in the, in the, silly, the silly Christmas songs. Uh, I, I like this one, I guess, for what it is. Um, here's a line from, from a modern-ish Christmas song. I put a tack on teacher's chair. Somebody snitched on me. I tied a knot in Susie's hair. Somebody snitched on me. You know this one? I did a dance on mommy's plants. I climbed a tree and tore my pants and filled the sugar bowl with ants and somebody snitched on me. This is, I'm getting nothing for Christmas. You're the outcome then of this. Uh, the singer says, so I'm getting nothing for Christmas. Mommy and daddy are mad. I'm getting nothing for Christmas because I ain't been nothing but bad. And then at the end, he says something kind of uh, sobering. He says, next year, I'll be going straight. Next year, I'll be good. Just wait. I'd start now, but it's too late. Somebody snitched on me. So you better be good, whatever you do, because if you're bad, I'm warning you, 
you'll get nothing for Christmas. You know, I chuckle at that. But I, you know, I've noticed how many of the like modern cultural Christmas songs and attitudes of Christmas are kind of like that. They're sort of threatening. You know, that uh, you're not supposed to be bad. You better sit up straight. You better stay off the naughty list. Otherwise, uh, Santa's not coming because Santa's always watching you. And boy, that makes me feel a little uneasy. And sometimes we think that about God. So we know God's always watching. And so, so you better sit up straight You better be good for goodness sake. That's the feeling, and it produces in us sometimes a perpetual paranoia. Somebody's going to snitch on me. Or it can produce in us a a perpetual resolve. Next year, I'll be good. Just wait. I'd start now, but it's too late. Have you ever thought that about God? Because that's a really rough way to live. The truth of the Bible and the truth of Christmas is that God does see sin. He doesn't miss it. He's not not paying attention. He does see our sin. And God, because he is holy and righteous and loving, just like mommy and daddy, is, in a sense, mad. That's true. But his response to that is not to give us a lump of coal. It's to give us his son out of love. That's why Christmas songs, Christian Christmas songs, if they're, if they're true to the Bible at least, instead of giving us threats uh, about just sitting up straight and producing uh, paranoia and resolve, or even just like the sort of syrupy family sentimentality that is sometimes what Christmas songs are about, Christian Christmas songs instead are full of the thrill of hope for the weary world rejoicing. My favorite one's O Holy Night. And one of the the first lines is, Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared. And the soul, and the soul felt his worth. That's the goodness of God, that God wants us then to see his worth. And so he then sends his messengers, the angels, to tell us, this child Jesus is my begotten son, very God of very God, and he will save his people from their sin. And then he says, Joseph, just as a reminder, I want you to name him Jesus. You know, you don't get the naming right, so don't name him Jack or George or Joseph or, or, you know, all those are fine names, but I want you to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh, or God, is salvation. In other words, his name is the Lord saves. 
And this child Jesus will have other titles, like Christ, which means the anointed one, or like Emmanuel, which means God with us. But his name is Jesus. The Lord saves. This, then, is the third message of God through the angels. The first was a call to repent from sin and to turn to God. The second was that this child would be born because of the favor of God. But the third message here for us is that they will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, to us. Help us then to rest in your salvation. And as we grow deeper in seeing your worth, would you change us, shape us to be more conformed to your likeness? Would you bring us true joy and hope and peace through Jesus this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.